Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Anna. And with us today is Dr. Guillaume Fianch, who is in the Department of Social Anthropology here at Manchester. Guillaume, welcome. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? So thanks for the invitation, for being here. I did my BA in Social Sciences and Social Sci- in Brazil at the Further University of Rio de Janeiro. And Social Sciences in my university meant Anthropology, Sociology and Politics. And then I went on on a master's in social anthropology at the National Museum, also from the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. And then I came to the UK to do my PhD in social anthropology here at the University of Munster. I've been here for the past four years. And in the meantime, I spent 13 months living abroad, mostly in France, to do my fieldwork. And now I've just finished my PhD a couple of months ago. Yeah, so congratulations on having survived the whole experience. <laughs> Thank you. It's, uh, it's not easy to do, but mm. you made it. So could you tell us a little bit about your research project? So in my research, I'm looking, I finished my PhD, but I'm still doing the same research, basically. I'm looking at uh, political activists in France who speak a language called Esperanto. So I don't know if you've heard of Esperanto before, but basically Esperanto is an international auxiliary language. It was, let's say, artificially created by a Jewish doctor who lived in the Russian Empire in the late 19th century. And his idea when he created this language was that people were always living in a situation of tension and hatred between ethnicities and nationalities, mostly because they couldn't understand each other. And if they had a common language that wouldn't be anyone's language, would be some sort of neutral language, this code of communication would enable these people to get together and to exchange ideas and maybe to reach peace one day. So he created this language on the basis of European languages mostly. And his idea would be that this language could be anyone's second language. And in my research, I was looking at how political activists in France linked their social movements with Esperanto. Because in the Russian Empire, where the language was created, most people who supported Esperanto were Jews or were pacifists. And then later, in the beginning of the 20th century, this language also reached Western Europe, mostly France. And in France, it became something else. Because most people who decided to speak and support this language were communists, anarchists, and they saw this language as part of their political engagements with other causes. And I was looking at this connection between political activism and language learning. So that's really interesting. I had heard of Esperanto before, but I don't know a great deal about it. It hadn't really occurred to me that it had been created as this quite a sort of utopian ideal of a language that would break down barriers between communities and eventually lead to peace. That's a really interesting idea. Yeah, well, especially since it's it's a very kind of intellectual creation. A lot of it is quite similar to Latin. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, like, the first book written in Esperanto was Unia Libra, which sounds very Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, and it literally means the first book. Yeah, because his idea was that this language should sound like Spanish or Italian, mostly Italian, because of opera. Because at that time, opera was one of the most important ways to disseminate things through spoken language, in terms of art and music and so on. And then he thought that if Esperanto could sound like that, it would be easier, for example, to convey it through music.
And so on your field work, you're working with political activists who engage with Esperanto. What kind of methods did you use? How did you conduct your field work? So most of my research was based on participant observation. So I spent 30 months doing field work and most of this time I was in Paris, in France. And I, was, I started my field work basically in Esperanto associations in Paris. And there were more than I expected, to be honest. And at first I knew of two of these associations. One of them was a left-wing Esperanto association. And the other one called itself a neutral Esperanto association. And then I was looking at these political conflicts that sometimes were happen among Esperanto speakers. And then from this initial fieldwork in associations, I started to network with other Esperanto speakers abroad. Also going to other informal meetings in Paris outside the framework of these associations. And I also conducted some archival research in personal archives of some of them, in the archives of associations, in the archives of the Communist Party in France. And I used language learning as part of my methodology, basically, because I'm not a native French speaker of French, but I could speak French properly when I started my fieldwork, just like I could speak Esperanto as well. But most of them felt more comfortable speaking to me in Esperanto because they wanted to have opportunities to practice the language with people who were not French speakers. In the middle of my fieldwork, I decided to code switch more often. Instead mm. of speaking to them in Esperanto all the time, I started to speak to them in French more often. And when I did this, some of them felt more comfortable to talk to me because they were not fluent in Esperanto. But some others didn't want to talk to me that much anymore. Because after all, the whole point of talking to me and giving me information was that I gave them the opportunity to practice Esperanto. And if they could speak only in French with me, what's the point? They could be speaking <laughs> with anyone else, basically. That's really interesting. So you mentioned that you also did sort of archival methods. So that's quite a varied methodology. How have you found sort of, or how did you find, because you finished, mm -hmm. uh, incorporating all those different methodologies into a sort of a final thesis? Yeah, because at first I was planning to base my research on participant observation and interviews. But when I started my fieldwork, some of my research interlocutors came to me and were saying all the time, oh, you're young, it's great that you're young and you're a foreigner and you're here. Because then by being a foreigner, you give us the opportunity to practice Peranto with okay, an international public. And also at the same time, by being young, you are the youngest person in our association. You are the only young people, person who comes to our meetings and join us in our discussions. And most of these people who were going to meetings and associations, they were much older than me. And they used it to say to have this narrative of the association being losing members, the association shrinking. And that for them meant also the shrinkage of the language, as mm. if the whole project was doomed. And I started to look at these documents to see if they were actually losing members or if that was only their perception of it or to check information about international Esperanto meetings, about attendance in previous meetings at their associations, about the finance of associations and so on. And then I decided to incorporate these methods and also to check their periodical collection to see how they addressed these issues in the past, if they were an issue at all. So the idea of incorporating archival research in my methodology came because of the material I was finding through my ethnography. Yeah, I understand. And were they losing members? 
is it sort of something is there shrinkage in the sort of esperanto speaking community in france yeah that's the thing uh this was one of the most interesting things i saw there because basically the associations are losing members that's true but the thing is that when they talk about losing members they are not checking the actual membership of the association they are talking about how many people attend their meetings but if we consider that these are national associations they have members all over france and another of these associations was a french speaking association so they also had uh, members in african countries they also had members in swiss switzerland in belgium and so on so they couldn't really know how many members they had if they didn't check these membership tables but basically they were talking about people attending the meetings mm. and there were less people attending meetings also because of a generational issue because some of these people were comparing the times when they were young Esperanto speakers to their current moment and then they were getting old mm. and they were not going to the association as often as before because of their advanced age because they couldn't go there all the time because before they were more active and they could be volunteers in the association office more often than they are now so also their engagement with the language was changing and that was what shaped their perception of this shrinkage and i don't think we could say that overall the Esperanto community is, lo is losing members or speakers because even though the associations may not be as active as in the past there are many people learning Esperanto online and these people are communicating mostly online and people from older generations even though they use uh, these online resources and social media and so on they don't take this as the starting point of their engagement with Esperanto so they don't have a complete grasp of the vitality of this new form of the community and then if you go to international Esperanto meetings if you also use the language online you see that there's something else going on there and these people these young Esperanto speakers, they are not talking about political activism as often as the older members in associations, but they are making memes. They are talking <laughs> about language discrimination. And sometimes they are simply having fun, networking, making friends from other countries. And that's also part of what Esperanto is supposed to be. Hmm. It's supposed to be about international communication. So it's still really pretty much alive, let's say, even though not in the same ways as in the past. So thinking about kind of artificially created languages, mm -hmm. does Esperanto, do you think, in the kind of geek community compete now with other languages like Klingon and Elvish and all of those? Is there a sense of competition or is it just a different movement altogether? Many people would make this comparison in terms of these Hollywoodian languages and Esperanto. But uh, the major difference is that Esperanto is more developed than these other languages. So you could learn Klingon or Dothraki or High Valyrian and so on. <laughs> but <laughs> even though the grammar of these languages are quite developed, because the users and the fans themselves <laughs> decided to develop it, but they don't really have a literature, for example. They don't organize meetings for these people to get together and practice the language and have actual conversations the language. In Esperanto they have all of this. So there's this huge library of books originally written in Esperanto or translated from other languages into Esperanto and people could easily 
some people actually do this. They get interested in the language because of the materials they can read through that. For example, one of these association members I interviewed in Paris, he was 50 years old. He came across Esperanto by accident because one of her, his friends was learning it and he was curious about this. And now he's completely passionate about this. In the inter interview I made with him, he was really proud showing me that he was reading a book of hung Hungarian tales. And without Esperanto, he would never have access to this kind of book. And even if he could have access to this through French, for example, he probably wouldn't choose to read this specific book. But since Esperanto is also about internationalism, he simply connected one thing with another and he had access and he started to value things that he wouldn't otherwise. And about the young Esperanto speakers online, most of them also connect Esperanto with open source software because both are languages. One of them is a human language, the other one a computer programming language, but both are languages that the users can also develop as they use them. So these young Esperanto speakers were all the time making word plays because, for example, as a non-native speaker of English, if I make a word play in English, many people would think that I'm making a mistake. And instead of laughing, people would feel like ashamed of that and would try to correct me or something. But Esperanto is no one's language, therefore it can be anyone's. So people would feel more comfortable in general to make these word plays. All of them, irrespective of their nationality, could potentially sound funny with that. <laughs> and Esperanto also give them this kind of freedom to deal with the language in a freer way and also to change it as they use it, just like we can do with open source software. Is there any comedy in Esperanto? Because that's very interesting because I found personally that comedy is kind of quite culture specific and language specific a lot of the time, like, you know, English has a lot more tendency for puns than Russian, which would be my first language. Is there is a comedy there? Like, how does it form? Have you encountered it at all? <laughs> oh, there are. In these international Esperanto meetings, there are also always theater plays. In these books in Esperanto, sometimes there are some ones that are more into funny stories and so on. But something that these authors always keep in mind is that these books are meant to be read by an international readership. So they cannot take for granted things that his or her fellow nations would understand clearly. Because they have to keep in mind that some of these things have to be understood by everyone. And some of these jokes and puns and so on are specifically related to Esperanto things. <laughs> so there are word plays that uh, would work specifically with them. There are some references that would be much more popular among Esperanto speakers than among others. And one of the examples is that they use this verb to crocodile, meaning to speak a language other than Esperanto in an Esperanto meeting. So if we are in an Esperanto meeting, the three of us speak in Esperanto, then I start to speak in English or in Portuguese, sometimes because I don't know a specific word or because for me it would be easier to speak my own language rather than another one in that specific moment, then people would comment to me, oh, don't crocodile, this is an Esperanto environment. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the kind of joke that they would be the only ones who could understand. And also the authors and people who create theater plays, for example, would play with these ideas. That's really interesting, especially because I think I don't I don't know this for sure, but I feel like one of the ideals of Esperanto was something where meaning is very clear, mm -hmm. right? That it was developed as a language where 
there wasn't as much ambiguity between particular words, which I guess can rule out some things. Like, I think one of the reasons why English is so rich in puns is that it's a super ambiguous language with tons of words that sound like other words or words that sort of mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to think about like joke formation in a language that's deliberately tried to reduce ambiguity like that. Yeah, but it's funny that there are many possible ways, because frontal works through agglutination, just like German, for example. So there are many possible ways of creating words to refer to the same thing. So to refer to old person, the most common word would be malio nulo. So yun is the root for young, ulo, an individual, a person, and mal, the prefix, means the opposite of all that. So the person who is not young, the old person. And pe- young people would usually use other words to refer to that. Instead of malio nulo, they would say mal bebo, the opposite of a baby, or <laughs> grandajulo, someone with a big age. So there are many ways, and some of them are more standardized, some others are like inventions or jokes and so on from these standard versions. Are any of them sort of seen as rude? Yeah, they, they can be. This <laughs> <laughs> doesn't seem in keeping with the sort of peaceful ideals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Once this community became alive, they started to do everything, not only to promote peace and to talk about peace. Because Esperanto is, in a way, a language movement, just like any other social mov- movement that promotes languages, like Catalan, like Occitan. Usually these language movements are associated with minority languages, but Esperanto would also be a language movement in the sense. But apart from the movement, there's also the community. And in the community, people do many other things apart from doing activism or promoting a cause. So in these moments, they also have fun. They also meet. They also like, tell jokes and have meals together. So this is the moment when the community becomes alive in different ways. Differences in like regional differences in pronunciation because you mentioned the French Esperanto speakers being particularly excited, you know, about speaking to you as a mm-hmm. as someone who experienced Esperanto in a different language environment. Like, is is there any regional differences? Because in Latin, obviously, you know, the way Latin is read in different countries is different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are many differences in the sense. Mm-hmm. Also, in terms of vocabulary choice, mm-hmm. but. In terms of pronunciation, for example, the name of the language itself, Esperanto. In Esperanto, the, let's say, the closest I can get to the standard pronunciation would be Esperanto. <laughs> but then French Esperanto speakers would be more likely to say Esperanto. <laughs> English speakers would say Esperanto. <laughs> so even the way you pronounce the words, for example, the French would be more likely to put the stress in the last syllable, which is not how it works in Esperanto, but that's how they adapt to what they can do. <laughs> and some of these, for example, can only speak Esperanto and French. They cannot speak any other language. So the only reference they have to like, express themselves in Esperanto is their mother tongue. And they try to improvise from it, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> how did you come into Esperanto? How did you learn it? Yeah, that's a an interesting story, I would say, because My grandmother, back in Brazil, had a friend who used it to write books in Esperanto. She always came to my grandmother's house and talked to me and talked to my grandmother for hours and so on. And I liked her. She knew that I liked to read. And at some point, 
she got older and she moved to live with her son and she had to give away many of the things she had in her previous house and then she donated to me her full collection of books and most of them were in Esperanto and basically I had three big shelves at home only with books in Esperanto in a language that I couldn't read <laughs> and I was 16 years old at this time and then I thought mm, maybe one day if I have nothing else to do if I have free time maybe I'll try to learn this language at least to be able to read these books to know what they are about after all and then when I started studying at the university by coincidence there was a free Esperanto course next to my university building I said okay so I think the time has come <laughs> and then I decided to enroll in this course and I started to learn the language and a couple of weeks later I realized that most of these books were about religion and I wasn't particularly interested in this content but at least I understood something and I was happy that I was making some progress in the language but then I said okay so I think I would read one or two of these books and that would be kind of enough but when I was taking this Esperanto course I met my course mates and there were 12 people if I'm not mistaken in our class and I started to realize that these people were talking about the international Esperanto community about the international movement and about going abroad to attend the international Esperanto Congress once a year in different parts of the world and because in each year this Congress takes place in a different country and but these people most of them were working class they had never left Brazil they had never learn any other language apart from Portuguese and Esperanto for most of them at a basic level and they had never traveled abroad so basically they most of them never met a foreign Esperanto speaker so and I started wondering why would they learn an international language if they have no opportunities to use it in an international way so what's the point of learning this if there would be of no use for them maybe and most of them would never go abroad so why talking so much about international Esperanto meetings that they would never attend? And then I started to get interested in this idea of how these people build a community, build a movement from a language that to me at that time sounded artificial. I was trying to make sense of it in my mind. I started to look for things to read about this. And I came across bibliography about uh, Esperanto literature, about Esperanto in linguistic terms, about in terms of language variation and language shift and so on. But I didn't find much about Esperanto in terms of a community and a movement. And the only book I found didn't give me the answers I wanted. And then I decided to do a PhD based on it because <laughs> I wanted to find answers and I couldn't. And I decided to look for them myself. That's basically the best reason to do yeah. a PhD. <laughs> yeah. You start with something you want to know and hopefully at the end you, you know it. Yeah. yeah. And um, I kind of know a couple of things, but maybe not everything I wanted. <laughs> why it's a lifelong journey isn't it you don't just do your PhD and then stop you yeah. have to carry on and do other things I suppose <laughs> so we ask all our guests if they have a funny story or something funny from their research that they can share with us I feel like we've already kind of covered quite a lot of funny things just in the course of the conversation but do you have something that you could share with us oh I think that one of these kind of funny situations related specifically to vocabulary change and vocabulary use, as we mentioned before. Because once I was in one of these French Esperanto associations in Paris, and I was helping to, helping to volunteers to organize documents in the association and to welcome visitors and so on. 
because that was part of my field work. I, for me to gain access to the association, I also showed my willingness to help them and so on, and to engage with their movement. When we were organizing the documents, one of these women came to me and said, oh, we have to leave these sheets of paper here on the table because tomorrow we have to... And then she, this whole conversation was in Esperanto. And then she told me, we have to numerig them. And I said, oh, okay, but why do you have to do it tomorrow? I can do it now. Because for me, like numerigi as a word doesn't exist in Sproto. Basically, she was improvising from French, but I didn't notice it straight away. And numerigi for me would mean literally to put numbers on something. That would be like if we use this as an Sproto word, which doesn't exist, that would what it would mean. And then I said, okay, so I have to put numbers in the pages, so I can do it now. Just give me a pen and I can do it. And then she looked at me, no, but you cannot do it now. It takes time. I said, no, just give me a pen. I said, are you planning to numerique this with a pen? I said, yeah, what do you expect me to do? I need a pen. I said, no, but we need a special machine for that. And then I said, we need a machine to add numbers to the pages? I said, yeah, of course. Do you want to copy everything? I said, no, I'm not copying anything. I'm just putting numbers. I said, what do you mean putting numbers? I said, okay, it's not working. Let's <laughs> code switch. And then we were both speaking in French. And I asked her, what do you expect me to do? I said, I want you to... And then she used the verb in French, numériser, which means to scan those documents. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, aha, okay, so, but numériser in, in, in Esperanto is similar to English. It's scanny. It's not numerique. <laughs> I said, oh, okay, so that was French, right? I said, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> she must have been so confused. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there were many funny stories in my fieldwork based on language use, but that was part of my research. And these misunderstandings is p are part of conversation in any language. In Esperanto, it's not an exception. So were the documents of the society in Esperanto or in French? So the administrative documents that have to be sent to the city council, to the national government, were in French because mm -hmm. of the regulations of the country and so on. For example, every association in France is entitled to receive some sort of financial help from the state. So they have to send these reports uh, twice a year to the French government to receive the money and they cannot send them in Esperanto. <laughs> but most of their internal documents would be in Esperanto because most of these documents would be for them to exchange with other Esperanto associations abroad. Mm -hmm. So that was the only way for them to communicate. So, Guillaume, thank you for being our guest today. I was actually going to ask you something. Normally we end the podcast by saying what happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. So one of us says, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. The other one says, what happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Could you say what happens on the podcast stays on the podcast <laughs> in Esperanto? Okay. I feel like that would be a good ending. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so. Don't ne forget Tio que ocasas en la podcasto, restas en la podcasta. Thank you very much for being our guest today. Thank you. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom. <laughs>